Hello, and welcome to Glasgow City Heritage Trust podcast, If Glasgow's Walls Could Talk, a new series about the relationships, stories, and shared memories that exist between Glasgow's historic buildings and people. Hello, I'm Neil Murphy, and welcome to If Glasgow's Walls Could Talk, a podcast by Glasgow City Heritage Trust about the stories and relationships between historic buildings and people in Glasgow. In this episode, we will be talking about Glasgow's entertainment industry over the last two centuries, and in particular, we will be discussing music halls, theatres and cinemas. Given Glasgow's population size and density, across the 19th and 20th centuries, it has been home to a huge number of music halls, theatres and cinemas, which served and entertained that population. During that time, these spaces occupied, and many still do, a significant role in the social and architectural life of the city and in people's memories. The history of these places is intrinsically linked with the changes in the entertainment industry and new inventions, such as the revolutionary introduction of cinema and television, that saw theatres struggling to retain audiences, forcing many to close as new sources of entertainment captured the public's imagination. If we look at the number and variety of historic cinemas, musicals and theatres, Glaswegians were definitely spoiled for choice. Among the most famous and still active of, the, of Glasgow's surviving historic theatres are the Theatre Royal, which is A-listed and which is the city's oldest theatre and the longest-running theatre in Scotland, the Citizens Theatre, which is B-listed, which has the most complete working Victorian theatre machinery in the UK, the King's Theatre, which is A-listed, which is in Bath Street and built in 1904 and famously described by Binley Connolly as like performing inside a wedding cake. And finally, the Britannia Panopticon Music Hall, another A-listed building and the focus of the first part of this episode. This amazing building is located at the corner of Trongate and New Wind Lane. The Music Hall started in 1857 in the midst of the Victorian era and the Industrial Revolution. The Britannia Panopticon had a very long and successful life, day after day entertaining audiences over 1,500 people with singers, dancers, comedians, acrobats, and also a carnival freak show and a zoo. This amazing space survived the First World War, the 20s, and the Depression of the 1930s, but by 1938, after 81 years of service, the Panopticon could no longer compete with a new form of entertainment, and it had to shut its doors. It was then sold to a firm of tailors called Weaver to Wear, who refurbished the whole place, hiding the balcony and the auditorium behind the suspended ceiling. The balcony was left untouched and uninhabited until the late 1990s. So today, our guest is Judith Bowers, founder and director of the Britannia Panopticon Music Hall campaign. Originally an archaeologist, Judith switched to social historian in 1991 when she established the Spirit of Glasgow walking tours. During this time, she discovered the Britannia Panopticon and made it her mission to raise awareness of the building's plight. In 1997, she gained access to the music hall and has been running the building and the campaign ever since. So, Judith, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Neil. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you here, Judith. It's always a pleasure to hear you talk. (laughs) So, Judith, your first question is, when did you find out about the Britannia Panopticon and how did you get involved? Well, in 1990, I really first came over to Glasgow 
And at that time, I had a workshop in the Virginia Galleries. I don't know if anybody remembers the beautiful old tobacco oh, warehouse. Oh, this wonderful, yeah, wonderful the place. Yeah, house. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful building. Much, anyway, much missed. Very much missed. And I, and I had the privilege of having a workshop up um, in, in the Virginia Galleries. And I loved that building. Anyway, my lunch breaks were taken up by walking the Trongate. And I found it a fascinating area. And the Merchant City, which at that time was not what we see today. You know, it was a lot dirtier, mm. a lot grimier. Liz Davidson's done a, lot, done a lot of work to clean up the Merchant City, along with, of course, in more recent years, uh, the Glasgow City Heritage Trust and people involved as well. I mean, it's a different area. And the Britannia Music Hall as a building always stood out to me with its its blue facade, its peeling blue mm-hmm, paint. Mm-hmm. I remember. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very ornate and so different from everything surrounding it. And then I was researching to do um, a ghost tour in the area. I had a company, as you said, Spirit of Glasgow, and it was walking tours. It was one of the first walking tour companies in Glasgow. And my ghost tour involved the building because I found out about the freak show in the attic. That's what started (laughs) my interest in the building. I included the freak show in my ghost tour, you know, because you had the headless man and the man who had the record for fasting and the lion-headed girl, and it just fitted in with the ghost tour. And then one of my ghost tour operators, actually he was on the murder tour with me, um, uh, <laughs> Stephen Duffy, he said to me that he, he at the time was at the, the academy, the Royal Scottish Academy, the Conservatoire as it now is, and his one of his lectures was on Music Hall and how they had seen photographs, a slideshow of the interior of this Music Hall and how Alistair Cameron, one of the lecturers up at Glasgow University, had um, also seen the inside of it and was trying to campaign, you know, he'd put a theatre trail up, raising awareness to it. Anyway, one day I'm walking along, I look into up at the building and then I go into the lane to the side of it, the pens, the covered bit, not the new wine... And I see Alistair Cameron's little plaque, which was the theatre trail, and it had a cross-section of the building and said that Stan Laurel debuted there. Well, that was it. I needed to know, (laughs) was anything surviving of this old music hall? Because I'd been told by Stephen, they'd seen pictures of it. Phoned the council. No. They knew nothing about it. They knew that it was a historic building. They knew it was listed inside and out, A-listed inside and outside. And um, I just tried to get in. And I couldn't get in. I used to go upstairs. It was the leather club at that point. And it was ladies downstairs, gents upstairs. I used to go upstairs. False ceiling obscured the music hall itself or the balcony level. But I could see the sloping ceiling of the balcony. And after many, many, many attempts of trying to get in, in on February the 23rd, 1997, um, I was walking past the front of the building. I looked up facade was still peeling all that beautiful detail was crumbling Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. my heart was breaking for the building and then somebody's knocking on the window furiously furiously knocking on the window and it was the window dresser for what was now Mitchell's Amusements and it was somebody I hadn't seen to the days of the Virginia galleries right so she's like come in for a coffee and was sitting having a coffee and down comes the owner of the building then with the lovely Mr Cushid Allen and mm-hmm. I just fluttered my eyelashes at him and said, can I see your darkened areas, please? <laughs> I kid you not, that is exactly what I said. <laughs> he said, yes, of course, I'd love to show, it would be lovely to show you the old music hall upstairs. So I went upstairs, up this old staircase, this twisting spiral stone stair. 
up onto this fake platform, which it turns out was the roof of a toilet that had been built above the stage. I pushed aside all these cardboard boxes full of coat hangers and I painted it out with torchlight. It was pitch black and I painted it out in torchlight and saw that the entire balcony, the projection room, a gent's toilet, it was all still there. In fact, there was even bottles, beer bottles, Mm -hmm. about half a dozen of them, sitting in about mm, up to their necks in, in pigeon poo and chicken poo. That had obviously been left there in 1938. Right. Amazing. Well, all I wanted to do was see the interior. But basically, I ended up going back the next day. Kershid Allen wanted me to take his kids on a ghost tour. And then he took me upstairs again with Councillor John Moynes. And then um, he contacted me again because Historic Scotland wanted in. And then I thought, I need, to, I can't do this. I have no idea how to do this kind of thing. He's getting me involved in something. So I went to Liz Davidson at Glasgow Building Preservation Trust and she said, what do you Mm -hmm, mean you've mm -hmm. got inside the building? I said, well, they've offered me an office and everything from a ghost tour. She says, if you can get in that building, you damn well stay there. Do it. Do it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I'm still there. (laughs) There you go. That's the short version. Fantastic stuff. (laughs) We're particularly interested in that kind of collection of objects that you found in the music hall. Mm -hmm. So... Which ones do you think are the most interesting? And, and what, does that, what does the story behind them, what does it tell you? Well, you know, famously, Neil, the, what, the objects that people get most fascinated by are the uh, fly buttons. Who uh, misses? Exactly. Archaeology is a wonderful thing. You take yeah, the yeah. objects left behind by the past and you put them together and you basically create a context for those objects one way or another. Yes. And it seems, and it isn't just us putting all these fly buttons found in this one little area together and saying it's prostitute corner. The evidence goes with it because of how that corner of the balcony is actually referred Mm -hmm. to in journals, like the quiz. You know, there's a wonderful quiz cartoon about, you know, um, what a shame it is for the mashers to take their Judys up into the balcony, which is why we don't abbreviate my name to Judy. Because that's what a Judy is, is a prostitute, you know. Right, I did not know that, right? There you go. You learn something new every day. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we know that that darkened corner of the balcony was notorious even by the 1880s, you know. Right. But my favourite objects, my favourite objects are a little bit more poignant. We actually Mm -hmm. have um, a wedding band and it's made from a copper penny. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, in those days, people didn't have the money to buy a gold wedding band. These were the poorest working class people of Glasgow that worked the industrial revolution for the city, you know, made the city the Absolutely. great place that it yeah. became. Yes. And they didn't have any money. And so they would take a penny, minted that year, the year of their marriage, they would take it to the shipyard and they would have it pressed into a wedding band. And this one even has the date inside of it of 1897. Right. So that to me is very poignant. That is somebody's wedding band. How did it end up under our balcony floor? Mm. How did it end up there? I I, I really don't want to think. (laughs) But I have another favourite. I have another. I have another. Just to go away from poignant and more to music hall and more comedy. And I think that the first bus should bring this back. We have a collection of tram tickets. You've probably seen them, Neil, when you've been in. We have them mm-hmm. in a perspex frame, some of them. We've got hundreds of them. And on the back of some of them are jokes. And one joke that we've got, which I think is absolutely marvellous, is from 1923. And on the back of this tram ticket, it says, why is a compliment from a chicken regarded as an insult? Go on, have a clue. Because it uses foul language. 
<laughs> oh dear, that's really tight. So that's were these so were these were they printed on the tram tickets or were yeah, they, they were, were somebody printed onto the back of the tram tickets? Yeah. So there was like it was like a Christmas cracker. Yeah, remember the old lollipops, the wooden stick used to get a joke on it. Same thing with the tram ticket, but in the nineteen twenties. That's amazing. So Glasgow Corporation had a sense of humour, basically. Basically, then, yeah. <laughs> that is so weird. Because <laughs> otherwise, I always thought they were quite paternalistic, but they wanted to entertain the people while they took the trams. That's, that's lovely. Well, maybe that's... by the 1920s, yeah. <laughs> Possibly, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so touching on that then, who were the people that went to the Britannia Panopticon in its heydays? And who are the people who go to the Britannia Panopticon now? And do you see any similarity between the two? Well, the smell is a lot better of the audience today than it was back then, <laughs> on occasion anyway. Um, the audiences, well, let's think about the audiences. See, Britannia Panopticon was a musical, not a theatre, and that was a very different species because music halls were not just but there was no theater productions you didn't see plays you saw variety and you also got your news your current affairs of the day you know this is where people petition for striking or not to strike or the temperance movement or suffrage movement you know everything basically was in the music hall it was tv for the day for the masses and as a result it was the working class masses that went it was cheap it was cheap entertainment. Now, if you think of the living conditions and working conditions of these people, these ordinary working classes in the factories, the mills, the coal mines, the shipyards, yep. they lived in hell, particularly in the 1850s up to the 1880s before the Housing Improvement Trust. It was awful. You didn't want to go home to those conditions. You went to the music hall if you had the money and that became your living room. You laughed. You blew off steam. You got rid of the frustrations of the day and you were in company with people suffering the same things as you. And of course, if an act did not satisfy them as a result, the act on stage certainly got to find out about it. And <laughs> is the audience the same? Yes. It is. It is still people that are still working class, but they're, they're not in the factories and mills necessarily. They're working in Tesco's or Marks and Spencer's or they're working on phone lines, you know, the telephone lines and things like that. But we also have the widest variety of audience. We have children coming in with mm -hmm. their grandparents to see music hall shows, you know, and we have yes. yeah, yeah. all sorts of people coming in for all kinds of different things because we do a lot of cinema, silent movies with live band, music hall shows, drag shows, variety shows. And as a result, it does bring in quite a cross-section of audience, but a lot of them come mm -hmm. by bus. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Great. Or a local, you know, or tourists. Yes, yeah. It is It is fascinating to think about the difference between kind of 1857 and nowadays, particularly when you look at things like the Ordnance Survey maps and you appreciate just how dense that part of Glasgow was and all the kind of the little wines and everything and all the people mm. that were crushed into them. And again, the contrast between 1,500 people in that space and what must be a fraction of that nowadays, you know, but mm. still a significant number of folk coming in and seeing it, but how dense it must have been and how kind of hot and damp and moist and the atmosphere in that place must have been so intense. Smoky. Absolutely smoky, very much smoky. Very smoky. I mean, one of the great, one of the fa one of favourite reports from the Glasgow Herald in about 1898 
was there was a riot in the Britannia Music Hall last night because <laughs> the smoke was so thick that the audience couldn't see the act on stage. <laughs> So, I mean, imagine sitting in that kind of environment and then you've got the Absolutely. animal poo that they used to throw mm. and the whelks mm-hmm. that they used to eat and the smell of sweat mm-hmm. because people didn't have mm-hmm. indoor showers and bathrooms and yeah, or toilets per household, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it absolutely. Was, and, of course, they used to urinate where they stood because they couldn't get to the one urinal that was installed in yeah. 1893. By the way, girls, we got a toilet in 1922. Hey, progress. <laughs> <laughs> It's outrageous, isn't it? It I mean, it's still, it's it's really fascinating when you consider the number of theatres, music halls that burnt down in Glasgow, all of that smoke, Mm -hmm. you know, people smoking and plus Mm -hmm. what they were lit by, that it survived Mm -hmm. full stop. So given all of that, then it is is this incredible survivor. It's really hung on. What, What do you see as the future being for the Britannia Panopticon? More toilets. For a start. Um, no, I think really not too many toilets. Now, what we would, well, I mean, this is something that will come out in the feasibility study again, which the Panopticon Trust and Friends Trust and myself will be working on hopefully in the next year or so. Sure. But it's always been my dream to bring Britannia Panopticon back to life as this incredible musical. She is the last original surviving musical intact. It would be criminal to turn her into a variety theatre, it really would. What we've got to do is celebrate this early history of variety, which only Mm -hmm. this building can actually encapsulate. So turning her back into a music hall and doing the things that we already do there, music hall shows, cinema, the variety of entertainments they used to have, and yes, the modern version of it too. You know, so we've got modern variety entertainment, the modern version of music hall sitting against the old experience of a music hall. Yeah. You know, and have the pub back on the ground floor, not some little thing with little displays on the wall, but a proper experience of a real, what a Victorian pub would have been like. You yes. know, with the staff yeah, yeah. all dressed up and can-can girls or singers or comics spontaneously appearing like the old free and easies. Yes. And having things like the exhibition back in the attic, you know, so you can mm-hmm. see what a waxworks and a freak show and a carnival was like. You can play the electric rifle range or see the automatons again. Give people a real experience of what life must have been like at that time in Glasgow, as well as give them the benefit of having modern shows and for the local population too. And it will be a great visitor attraction for the city. Mm. Very much. So the Britannia Panopticon, it's an A-listed building. So mm-hmm. um, can you take us through the, the changes that it's been through since it was first built in, in 1857 and, you know, after it closed its doors in, in 1938? Can you tell us something about that? Well, when it was converted in 1857, because the building was already extant, but when it right. was converted into a music hall in 1857, initially thought a department store. But they converted it into music hall because that's what the area needed at that time. And Mm -hmm. um, they obviously put in the first music hall at that point, which we think, although we don't know for sure, because it takes a bit of theatre archaeology and we haven't got to that point yet. But we think that the original balcony probably came right up to the back wall of the auditorium. Right. And there was a small clamshell stage underneath it a very small stage. Mm -hmm. And that got adapted around about 1868 when the Rosbers took over. That might be when that changed. And they put bench seating in 
So that was the first adaptation, was putting in bench seating. And also um, a proscenium arch. So it shortened the length of the balcony and it gave a more theatrical look to the building by giving um, a frame for the axon stage, a proscenium being the arch in front of the stage. And, um, and over the years, little adaptations have been made. For example, because of the gasoliers being put in, incidentally to burn off excess cigarette smoke, they had to actually put in ventilation in the ceiling. So we have this latticework ventilated ceiling in the middle because if they didn't vent the gas fumes, people were suffocating. You know, <laughs> they were basically suffocating <laughs> in these places. That's yeah, a good true. outcome. Then, you know, and then in 1904, they brought in health and safety for the first time in these buildings. And uh, they had to put in a fire exit as a result. Um, then, of course, 1896, actually, they had to put in the electric light. And that enabled us to show cinema for the first time on August the 25th, 1896, in fact. Um, right. And A.E. Picard, when he took over in 1906, added a staircase to take you up to the attic and turn the attic into the rooftop carnival waxworks and freak show. And he also converted the basement at extraordinary expense underneath the pub into a zoo and hall of mirrors. So these are the kind of adaptations that we've had over the years. And of course, above the stage, the racking system was replaced by a pulley system, we think, in 1923 after a fire on the stage. Right. So those are the main changes. Other than that, it's pretty much the same old Victorian music hall that was installed by a bunch of shipbuilders back in the 18, late 1850s. Right, you know? okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and don't forget the toilets. I've got the toilets. Uh, the toilets were put in 1893 for the gents, one urinal, mm -hmm. one cubicle. Mm -hmm. And ladies, we got one cubicle in 1922. Obviously, our clothing would not have accommodated the cubicle before then, the big skirts and the big bustles. It wasn't going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> Does, doesn't bear thinking about it again. Um, okay, so if you could travel back in time, what show would you like to watch at the Britannia Panopticon and why? Well, because it was musical shows, it was variety and the bill changed every week. There wasn't actually a show like, you know, saying that you could go and see Chitty Chitty Bang Bang or Mary Poppins. But there are certain artists I would have liked to have seen. And obviously, the one I would love to travel back in time to see is Stan Laurel doing his of debut course. when he was 16 years old. Absolutely. You know, if I could travel back to that moment in time. Another moment in time I would like to travel back to, though, is the very first time they showed cinema in the building. Mm -hmm. People's reactions to it, having never seen anything like that before. Oh, my God, that train's going to come through the screen. Yeah. Well, except for they had a slightly... They didn't have the train thing um, in Panopticon. Oh, did they the first not? Films, no, no, the first films there was Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, um, a comic scene in a restaurant... A blacksmith's forge, soldiers marching or parading, a lynching scene and a cockfight. <laughs> Charming. <laughs> oh, when a Mexican stuff. duel, I forgot the Mexican duel. <laughs> of course. <laughs> just, just for good measure. Bizarre. I wonder who thought these things up. It's, it's really, uh, cinema in its infancy is, is really quite fascinating. So, which handling up brings me on to our next guest. So who's Gary Painter, one of the creators of the Scottish Cinema Project website. So the Scottish Cinema Project is a volunteer-led, non-profit site dedicated to recording and archiving Scotland's historic cinema architectural heritage. 
At present, there are around 1,140 cinemas included in its digital database, with 800 photographs covering more than 250 different places around Scotland. So Gary got interested in old cinema buildings in the mid-1990s while working at the Odeon Cinema and the Theatre Royal in Glasgow. Gary is also a full-time, though now furloughed, stage doorkeeper at the Theatre Royal and occasionally at the King's Theatre. Cinemas in this country have had and continue to have a tumultuous and ever-changing history. By 1914, around 20 years after the first films were shown in the country, there were 4,000 venues in existence. A very high number of the new cinemas were built between the 1920s and the 1940s, particularly as the talkies, that's films with sound, took hold. Cinemas were seen and experienced as social and meeting places and were part of the everyday life of thousands of people in Glasgow. From a post-war total of 4,700, the number of cinemas fell to 3,050 by 1960 and to 1,971 by 1965 as television's popularity grew. They suffered again in the, in the early 1980s with the invention of home videos. Today, in 2021, there are 843 cinemas in the whole of the UK. Unfortunately, the high number of cinemas built in the space of a few years in the early and mid-20th century is linked to the high number of historic cinema buildings that are being demolished nowadays. Among the most remarkable historic cinemas in Glasgow, we have the Glasgow Film Theatre, which is B-listed, and which was Scotland's first art cinema, and that opened in 1939 and is still active today. We also have the B-listed Govanhill Picture House, built in 1926 and famous for its unique Egyptian-styled facade with columns and a moulded scarab above the entranceway. It's one that's really much loved on the south side of Glasgow. So... At Glasgow City Heritage Trust, we certainly love all things cinema, and so we're very excited to have Gary here with us today to discuss various aspects of old cinemas in Glasgow. Welcome to the podcast, Gary. Thank you for having me. Very glad it's, to be here. It's a pleasure, Gary. So first up, questions for you. Why are you so fascinated by cinemas, and why do you think they are so interesting and important? Uh, it started when I, I was working at the Odeon, so I, I had a student job uh, and. Like Judith, I'd studied archaeology. I was studying archaeology and Scottish history at Glasgow University. So uh, I needed a student job, and then I got one. A friend had works in the, the Odeon in Renfield Street. So I got a job there in December 1995. And uh, I was a popcorn wrangler, so I worked mostly in the shop. Um, but right. occasionally that meant you had to work the bar. So upstairs there was a, a bar which, on a good night, you know, you were lucky if you made your wages back. It wasn't terribly atmospheric or popular. So you'd just be sitting there reading a book sometimes, uh, and one day an old projectionist, a man called Frank, uh, wandered by, and he'd worked in the building on and off since uh, the late 1940s, uh, and he wandered by and he showed me a magazine which had uh, photographs of the building as it was uh, when it first opened, uh, and I, I was fascinated by this because it looked nothing like that at the time. It had been comprehensively subdivided uh, in 1970 and then again in the 80s. Uh, so at the time I started work there, it had six screens, where there was originally just one. 
so the archaeologist in me started sort of twitching and looking at suspiciously at ceiling voids <laughs> and hatches and wondering what was behind them all. Uh, sure. So, you know, I started straight, I would come back from a break covered in dust and said, where, where, where are you? I was, well, I was just looking up this hatch and crawling around in this void to see what I could see. Uh, but it was very fragmentary. There wasn't much left. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of how it started. That was how I got interested in, in the aspect of cinemas was by working there and talking to staff who remembered it as it was. Sure. Fascinating. So did that basically, was that where the kind of the, the, the point of origin for the Scottish Cinemas website, is that where it came from? Yeah, kind of. Um, I, you know, I was just sitting idly in university one day Googling Glasgow cinemas to see what's coming up. And the website popped up uh, and it was very rudimentary. It had six cinemas or something on it. And it was, and it turned out it was another Glasgow University student who'd made it. He was just practicing his web skills to see if he could build a web page. And he lived near what was the Ascot Cinema in Annie's Land okay. at the time. And it was it was and the auditorium was being demolished to build flats behind the retained facade. So he took a he took a few photos of that and he put this on a website. Uh, and it kind of was two interests for him. It was website design and it was old cinemas, which he realised at the point at that time that he quite liked. So I contacted him and we met up uh, and you know that was about two thousand and one, two thousand and two. Uh, and ever since then, we've just been building this website. And so, you know, we've become more formally involved in these kind of things. Uh, there's an organisation called the Cinema Theatre Association, which is a, a kind of British body who, they're all volunteers mostly, and they, they promote the history of cinemas and cinema buildings and, uh, and all aspects of cinemas. And that kind of is what does it. Uh, we've become the Scottish caseworkers for them, uh, but also we, also we sit on the committee. Uh, so, so we started informally, you know, objecting to planning applications that were going to ruin cinemas, and then we started doing it formally under the auspices of the CTA. Right. Okay. So, how do you go about populating the website? Is it by submission, or is this just all your own research? Uh, it's a mixture of both, really. So, uh, I mean, I should say at the moment we we haven't had time. When we started this, you know, we were young pups in our mid twenties. Uh, young, footloose and fancy free uh, and we were able to devote lots of time and, and energy to it uh, now and you know now we're in our mid 40s people know, when people meet us they used to say you're much younger than we were expecting but they, they, don't, <laughs> they don't say that anymore alas this is, uh, now that this we're is you our, and Gordon Barr yeah yeah so, so Gordon now <laughs> that we're in our in crime. yeah now we're in our 40s we're, we're not really uh, nobody expects us to be this age but um, yeah so uh a lot of the time it was just asking building owners, can we come in and take some photos? Or, you know, when you would put it up, people would submit photos or they would do it. So we, we haven't we haven't updated it now for a long time because uh, life basically has got in the way. Uh, and it was always an entirely free time thing done completely for the love and, you know, nothing mm-hmm, we ever get mm-hmm, paid for. Mm-hmm. So it is a wee bit out of date now, but, but it is a complete mixture of things that people have sent us and things we've done and, you know, Things that we've bought on eBay over the years, vast archa, you know, I've got a cupboard full of things that I've bought over the years from cinemas and theatres uh, all around Scotland. Oh, it's a fantastic website. I love going to because uh, there are particular things I've got. I've gone and checked on it at various times. 
and it's just a, it's an amazing resource. I mean, things like the um, uh, you know the John John, John James Burnett um, uh, the Athenium Theatre. Yeah, yeah. And you know what happened with that? I mean, I know it's a hard rock cafe nowadays, but for years it was closed. And but all the information was there on your website. I was really lucky to, to attend one of the last performances in there. Yeah. But you know what a fantastic space, which is kind of at least it kind of survives, but you know it's not not what it once was. But to have that as resources is 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 fantastic. Yeah, I mean that that was one of the early things we went in and saw was the the Athenium Theatre uh, at mm. the time. It was still very much readable as a theatre, uh, which is not so much now. It's kind of hard when you're standing there to think this was a theatre. Uh, but yeah, I mean I was only ever in it once when it was. I think I saw a, a pre-fame Harry Hill in there uh, many 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 years ago. And that was the only time I was ever in it as a theatre. Um, but yeah, I mean it's just a as a topic. I think it just it, there's so many aspects of cinema and theatre history. Uh, you know, um, cinemas, you've got the technology, you know, it all came about because of technology, you know, people messing around with this thing that they didn't even know what the use for, was for, mm. you know, was it a science thing, was it for recording things, was it entertainment, uh, so, you know, people messing around with that and the camera technology, suddenly we have this ability to communally project a film, Yeah. Uh, so you've got that, and then, you know, how that technology changes over the years changes the buildings as well, you mm. know, so... Mm -hmm. You've got the invention of talkies and then colour and then widescreen formats, 3D, and nowadays you've got 4DX where you sit and get water sprayed in your face and stuff like that as you're watching film. Uh, and then, you know, of course, digital now as well has changed the way cinemas are built and operated. So, you know, there's a technology aspect. There's also the business aspect, you know, so there are a lot of people who are quite interested in the, the people behind the cinemas uh, and the, the companies behind the cinemas, the chains like like Odeon and Gaumont and ABC. Uh, and ABC are actually, they've kind of got Scottish roots, Glaswegian roots. And uh, that was a solicitor called John Maxwell who started ABC. He just kind of gathered up little chains of uh, sort of cine variety theatres uh, around about the west of Scotland and he eventually merged them and it eventually became ABC Cinemas who ended up sure. running, running a film studio as well so sure. ABC has Glaswegian roots I didn't um, I didn't know that because of course there's the Green the Green family as well yeah you get the were, Greens as well incredibly powerful at one point they were yeah and um, they were um, so they were show people originally and they were really important in the early cinema uh, so because it was the sort of travelling showmen who would either take equipment around little halls uh, all around Scotland or they would take it around fairgrounds uh, and they went on to develop quite a lot of the, the first permanent cinemas. So, you know, mm -hmm, Glasgow, mm -hmm. the west of Scotland, the Fruitons and the, the Greens and the Singletons as well. The Singletons who built the, the Cosmo, the JFT, they started off taking a screen and equipment around little halls uh, sure. before they got their first one out in Hamilton. But yeah, I think it's just uh, it's just a, as a topic, I think it covers all these kind of things for me. You know, you get the cultural history. You know, both high and low art coming to the most unlikely of places. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You've got the social history as well. You know, I mean, these buildings were mostly commercial ventures, uh, and people, you know, you get very nice commercial buildings out there, like banks and things like that. But people don't think of them as fondly as they do of cinemas. Uh, because it's, you know, they've got memories of going there as a kid or, you know, they went there with people who eventually became their partners, they were, you know, sort of first dating. Uh, so people really think of them fondly, much more so than a lot of other commercial buildings. Very much. Yeah, I know. I mean, just think, thinking of things like um, this earth, earthquake and yeah, yeah. Sensam around and yeah, stuff like that around, and how, yeah. how, these, yeah, how, how they were all kind of pushed and it was all the innovations and all kind of experiencing that. Must have been fantastic at the time. It was, and it's, it's an extraordinarily faddy thing, cinema as well, mm. it's always reinventing itself and it's always 
revisiting old ideas to try and bring them up to date with modern technology, you know, so you're sitting sure. being juggled around in a 4DX seat, you think, well, roller coaster and earthquake were doing this in the 70s, you know, they were putting speakers under your seat to make it wobble yeah. around. Yeah, yeah, yes. uh, yeah, yeah. 3D, of course, tried to make a comeback about 10, 15 years ago, uh, now that you didn't need the sort of coloured glasses. Uh, and, you know, the buildings themselves have changed to these fans. You know, the early cinemas were just thrown up wherever they could be. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Shops, uh, converted factories, churches, halls. The Victorians and Edwardians were fiends for building halls. They, yes. they, did, like, yeah, yeah. they, did, they did like a gathering. Uh, so they just used those spaces uh, and existing theatres and music halls, of course, as well. Uh, and then 1910, a piece of legislation comes in, the Cinematograph Act, uh, in response to safety concerns about film. The, the film at the time was nitrate and it was really highly flammable. So that brought in legislation where local authorities could license cinemas and so a lot of the older conversions kind of drop off because it's too expensive or too Right, because they have to be, be purpose-built yeah. after that. Right. Yeah, so after that, they have to be purpose-built. So then you have architects sitting down thinking, what else a cinema? So, you know, they're starting from scratch, having to design this cinema with fireproof projection rooms and stuff like that. So that's yes. when we see the sort of first custom-built cinemas. Yes, uh, yeah. And I then, mean, you know... We're, we're- we're looking at people like Thomas Baird at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And who, who is a fantastic cinema architect from, yeah. from Glasgow. Did really interesting work. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and yeah, you know, th- things like the the salon in the West End, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, being built entirely of uh, Hennepin ferro concrete yes. uh, as a response to, directly to that legislation. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, very but, much. And then, of course, you get the World Wars coming in and they kind of, you know, between the World Wars is the height of cinema building, uh, and so there's a kind of gap after the First World War because materials were scarce, and then they start looking to America and building bigger and better ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then after the Second World War, they're all knackered. So you know, yeah. this is where sort of nobody really builds cinemas again for years after that. But yes. then, but then the older buildings start changing. They start adapting, you know, by being subdivided. Uh, and then you start getting multiplexes, uh, and a lot of the older ones, of course, being changed. They became bingo halls. So a lot of the older ones yeah. have been. Have been bingo that are still around. They've been bingo halls for far longer than they've been cinemas. So it is really, really faddy in entertainment in general. Very much. So, do you think that's perhaps why um, so many old cinema buildings are being demolished in the K in the UK? And, and do you think that's something that will will either improve or get worse because of COVID? Yeah, it's a tricky thing because uh, they always were really difficult buildings to adapt to this large single volume space. Hmm. So when they stop becoming a cinema, what do you do with them? That, that sort of doesn't compromise the architectural integrity of them too much. Yeah. Uh, but they're also incredibly fragile because, you know, the minute you lock the door, water starts getting in, you know, the, round the back, essentially, these were brick sheds with asbestos yeah. roofs. Yes. So, uh, you know, the, you close the door for 10 minutes and suddenly there's a roof in, there's ceilings yeah. down. Yeah, yeah um, they're quite fragile, really. They, they really are quite fragile. And also they're, they're built of stuff that kills us, you know, like asbestos. Yeah, alas. And, <laughs> yeah, things like that. So, you know, people don't want to touch them. Um, so we do end up losing quite a lot of them uh, because of that. But and also the you know traditionally the site for them was on the high street, so the really valuable real estate as well. So it mm, becomes mm-hmm. much more lucrative just to sell them off for redevelopment. Uh, whether that involves keeping any aspect of them or more more commonly not just getting rid of them. Sure. Uh, but but with COVID as well, we're seeing you know things like uh, a lot of the bingo companies have closed a lot of bingo halls during COVID and have said they're not going to bring them back. So things like the Mecca and Rutherglen Main Street, right. uh, which was one of the Singleton's Vogue cinemas and then became an mm-hmm, Indian, mm-hmm. Uh, they've announced that's not reopening. So that's another right. one we're going to have to that's keep. That's a great shame. Yeah. Right. So what are your top three favourite cinema buildings in Glasgow? 
I think uh, one's probably in the Gallagate in the East End. It was called the Orient. Uh, and it was a few doors along from what's still a sort of prominent 1930s building near the Belgrove Hotel. Right. Uh, kind of working man's hostel. Uh, mm-hmm. A few doors along from that was this Orient Cinema. And it was really, you know, externally it had this kind of ziggurat thing on the outside. Uh, but when you went inside, it was uh, built in what they called an atmospheric style where it had all these wee miniature buildings along the walls to make it seem like you were sitting in some exotic courtyard. So, <laughs> you know, the, the escapism wasn't just about the film you were watching on screen, it was about where you were watching it. It was as if you were watching this in a, a location almost as exotic as what you were watching on the screen. So it had all these wee minarets and, and mm-hmm, ca- mm-hmm. sort of Disney castle spires and things at the side. Uh, and it was, it was a wonderful cinema. It was built by a man called Albert Gardner, who uh, was a slightly eccentric uh, architect who specialised in cinemas. Um, and he, he, he specialised in atmospheric cinemas. The other sort of architect who did that was uh, William Beresford Ingalls, who designed the Beresford Hall. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the two of them, between them, designed most of the atmospheric cinemas in Scotland. And I think the Orient and the Gallagate would have been an absolute knockout to see in its day. Sadly, it was demolished about 15 years ago. Right. Uh, another one is uh, probably the Hillhead Salon, which I mentioned. Um, it's just a, it was a little knockout in its day because, mm-hmm. it, you know... It, it was using technology to respond to this issue of fire safety. Uh, so it was built entirely of concrete, but not without beauty as well. You know, you go inside and it's got these little ribbed concrete arches on the vaulted ceiling, which have got plasterwork directly applied to them. So even though it's now a pub, you know, there's still vestiges of it there that you can go in and see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the last one, oh, it's a bit of a toughie, the last one. It was a toss-up between the, the salon and Sucky Hall Street, which was uh, this fantastic tiled Moorish cinema. Mm-hmm. Uh, which sadly, the, the building itself was adapted. It was a very short-lived cinema. It was only there between 1913 and 1923. Uh, but it was uh, very short-lived, and uh, it became a, a kind of retail sports shop, and then it became all sorts of businesses. So one of the last things in there was like the Moon or Rooftops Disco, uh, and that was lost in the first of the Sucky Hall Street fires a few years ago. Right, um, right. So it was a toss-up either between that or the, the absolutely wonderful Lyceum in Govan. Mm, uh, which you I know, love was, the Lyceum. You know, the Lyceum opened just before the World War Two, and it, you know it was influenced uh, by the Empire Exhibition just along the road. So it was ultra-modern, streamlined architecture. Mm. Uh, and it was vast as well. It's had something like 2,300 people. It's, it's wonderful. And it is yeah. enormous. And it's it's enormous, space. yeah. And it's absolutely just sitting there dying for some viable use and some, someone know. to come along and save it. So, yeah, yeah. Those, those are probably my favourites. Right. And if you could go back in time to see a demolished theatre or cinema in Glasgow, one would you like to go seeing what show and why yeah I, th- I think i'd love to go see something like but the odeon where i worked which is now just the foyer block which survives mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. got a tower block behind it i think i'd love to go see that in its heyday uh when there was a big show was something like bill haley or the uh, the beatles who played there when it yes it had full, yeah, yeah absolutely it had full stage facilities so it'd been fascinating to go in and see how it all worked there because you know there were remnants of these dressing rooms and music rooms and stuff there when i worked there but I'd love to have seen it all in its heyday when it was all working and it, you know, it had its own wee department and staff of hundreds. Uh, and it would just have been nice to see the people inhabiting the space where I inhabited doing their jobs uh, and what it was like years ago. You know, So I walked by the Odeon in Renfield Street the other day and I looked up and there's somebody sitting at a desk typing away because it's just offices now. And yeah. I thought, well, I'm one of those ghosts now as well myself because it was... You know, yes, yeah, you are. 15, yeah. 15, 20 years ago, I was sitting at that very window, you know, <laughs> 
fiddling the disparities in stock to when I was doing my stock count on a Thursday night. You know, I was sitting, <laughs> sitting making up wastage figures. <laughs> and I thought, I wonder if that person ever thinks about me, about someone else who was sitting yeah, there in the past. A, 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 for, former uses of the space. Yeah. yeah, I wonder, I wonder. So you told us that you work as a, as a stage doorkeeper at the theatre role and occasionally at the King's Theatre. Do you think your position is one of those traditional wars roles that stayed the same during the last century? I think it is because I've found a few articles online about stage doorkeepers in the Edwardian and Victorian period, uh, and it does seem to be remarkably similar. You know, but back then they're, they're described as a, a position that was usually reserved for gruff men. Uh, well, I'm pleased to say we, we now employ women, so we have our own gruff women now there as well. Uh, but it is quite an unusual job. I tell people that I'm a stage doorkeeper, 95% of them just kind of screw up their eyes and look at me. What else a stage doorkeeper? Uh, but yeah, you're, you know, you're essentially just the guardian of the stage. You know, that you're, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're sitting there like a little troll in your broom cupboard, uh, stopping people from coming in who aren't allowed in, uh, answering mail and stuff like that. So you know, the only real differences are things like fire panels, which are much more modern these days. Sure. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're still little trolls who sit in cupboards. <laughs> Okay, I want to bring Judith back in at this point because I have a couple of final questions for both of you. First off, do you think that Glasgow was or is a special city for entertainment? And if so, do you think it is the people or is it a form of escapism? Was it to do with the city's industrial past? What what do you think? Do you want to go first, Gary, or shall I? You go, Judith. I'm sick listening to myself now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sweetie, I love listening to you. I could listen to you for hours. I know. (laughs) The thing is with Glasgow is that entertainment was really illegal. It was illegal for a long time, from the Reformation in the 16th century up until, what, the 1790s? And ironically, if you were caught in any way drawing public attention to yourself by singing or dancing or anything like that, you would be publicly punished for it. And that was the only legitimate entertainment in Glasgow was public executions and punishments. God. <laughs> I always think that explains a Glasgow audience, to be honest. You know, <laughs> their attitude. But I think that, that Glas- Glaswegians have had a really rough deal, particularly during the Industrial Revolution, right the way through the Victorian era, really, right, right up until... The 1950s, Glasgow had a rough deal. The working population, the ordinary working classes, it was tough. That's why they need entertainment. Like you say, escapism. So basically all of the above, I think, really, Neil. Okay. Gary? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all the things we've touched on, uh, you know, to do with population density and the difficulty of work. And, you know, Glasgow Glasgow in the Mm. 20s, 30s, you know, it had a population of a million in a much smaller area than it is now. So, uh you know, people needed space. And you think about, you know, a night at the theatre or the cinema is that, you know, it was relatively cheap back then. There was none of this 80 quid a seat nonsense. Um, you know, a few pennies, you could go in and sit in a cinema. Uh, someone else was paying for the heating. It was probably yeah. Yeah. probably slightly more lavishly furnished than your, your own house. You know, some, you know, I like to think of cinemas as the dogs of the architecture world. You know, they come in so many shapes and sizes and degrees of lavishness and scruffiness um so uh, you know you could but go they're all along, cozy and comfy somewhere yeah yeah you could you could go along sit there for, huggable 
Yeah, <laughs> you could you could sit there for uh, you could sit there all day, be heated, watch the film. You know, you didn't just watch a separate film back then. You you sat through a whole program, and you could just stay there pretty much as long as the usher didn't kick you out. You could stay there as long as you could. But also there was privacy as well. You know, everyone living on top of each other in their houses. You know, the, the cinema or theatre was somewhere you could go with a wee bit of privacy. You know, sitting yeah. in the back. Yeah, and uh, anonymity with, of yeah, big spaces. And, yeah, absolutely. With, with or without your significant other, you know, it was up to you if you wanted just peace and quiet to do whatever you did in the peace and quiet. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure enough. Okay, next question and final question. And this is a loaded question for both of you. So what is your favourite building in Glasgow and what would it tell you if it's Walls Could Talk? Who wants to go first? I think we know what my favourite building in Glasgow <laughs> is. It's the entire reason I live in Glasgow. <laughs> 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 it's the only reason I live in Glasgow, love. <laughs> <laughs> Britannia Panoptic. If anybody's any any doubt what my favourite building in in Glasgow is, <laughs> it's the Britannia Panoptic Museum. Could never have guessed that one. <laughs> I, I was going to go for the, just along the road from where I'm sitting just now, the Sentinel factory in Pomedy. But, um, oh, right. But I realised, you know, it's a factory, so its walls probably didn't hear very much. So, you know, what kind of building hears and sees something mm. much more interesting? Mm -hmm is a hotel, so I'm thinking the Beresford Hotel, you know, back in its heyday, you yeah. know, when it first operated as a hotel and it must have seen the height of glamour, you know, what went on in its rooms, I think it could tell mm. quite, a few, quite a few good stories. Def definitely, well, that's where, that's where John F. Kennedy made his first public yeah. speech. Yeah. So, so there you go. wonder how many folk in Glasgow know that. <laughs> Interesting stuff. Okie dokie, well, thank you very much for that. It was extremely enjoyable to have both of you on. As ever, always a pleasure with both of you. So to our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow the hashtag if Glasgow Walls could talk. Thank you very much. The following message was submitted by a member of the public. If you want to leave a message about your opinions, memories and thoughts about Glasgow's historic built environment, have a look at our website to find out how. When I was four and a half, in 1941, uh, my mother had another child. Now, she'd been taken into hospital prior to this because she was ill, and she was ill even after she came home. So because of this, my maternal grandmother moved in to look after us. And my maternal grandmother had a cinema habit. She liked to go to the pictures twice every week. But unfortunately, because she wasn't the most pleasant of people and she didn't have many friends and the family were reluctant to accompany her, from the age of about five, twice every week, I was volunteered to go with my grandmother to the cinema. It was a cinema in Parliamentary Road. And so from an early age, I was um, watching all kinds of really inappropriate, unsuitable stuff for a small child. Censorship was different in those days, I realise now, but um, I just have this memory of being quite frightened by some of the films I've seen, but I didn't care because I loved going to the cinema, and even though my grandmother was really unpleasant and not really very nice to be with, I didn't care because by the time I was about seven, I was a complete cinema addict. 
Glasgow City Heritage Trust is an independent charity and grant funder that promotes the understanding, appreciation and conservation of Glasgow's historic built environment. Want to know more? Have a look at our website at glasgowheritage.org.uk and follow us on social media at Glasgow Heritage. This podcast was produced by Inner Ear for Glasgow City Heritage Trust. This podcast is kindly sponsored by the National Trust for Scotland and supported by Tunnex.